Who I know was so enthusiastic, especially about being here, but he had to be away this week. And you probably told you already. But um, it's my privilege to introduce our guest today, Kevin Schwartz, who is um, expecting his PhD. Or still expecting, or is it? In about eight weeks, hopefully. Okay, there yeah. we go. See, it's I pretty close. It, sounds, it's close. It, lo it looks close. It looks yeah. close. So that's hard to say that. I can see the halo of, of, of hope. Yeah. The halo of completion on the, on the horizon there. So he's receiving his degree eminently from the Department of University Studies at uh, UC Berkeley. Um, he also has a master's degree in Middle East Studies from Harvard, and a BA in Political Science and International Relations um, from Columbia, which is I point out because he's taken such a different route, and I applaud his route since then to move in the field of, of, um, of Persian literary culture. Um, he is also um, our inaugural speaker launching uh, this autumn quarter's focus on literary cultures of Muslim South Asia, um, which is also co-sponsored by the Center for South Asia. So Kevin, thanks so much for sharing your work with us today and um, for inaugurating this series. So welcome. Okay, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate the invitation, the introduction, so thank you for having me. What I'm going to do today, I'm going to divide my talk into three parts. And the first part is going to look at the writing of Persian literary history, the categories used to conceptualize its development over time. And here my goal is to point out that the standard narrative of Persian literary history is somewhat Iranian-centric, and that it elides different literary movements and aspects of Persian literary culture occurring outside Iran, particularly in the 19th century. To highlight one of those vibrant poetic atmospheres occurring outside Iran in the 19th century, I'll turn toward mid-19th century South India and the court of the last Nawab of Arkat, the final sovereign ruler of the Carnatic state, a successor state that grew up in the breakup and the decline of the Mughal Empire in post-Aurangzeb times. And here my goal is just to reintroduce this little-known outpost of Persian literary culture and its vibrant poetic environment. The third thing I'll do is I'll look at Tazki reproduction at this court of the last Nawab of Arkat and look at the literary debates and rivalries ensconced and contained within them. And having done that, looking at the literary debates of this far-off outpost, I'll connect it back to some of the major concepts of Persian literary history writing. Now finally, just one note on the term Tazkire, because it's a term in my title, I use it throughout and I draw on Tazkire as the main source of my research. It could be defined as biographical dictionary, biographical anthology. It comes from the Arabic root dhakara, meaning to recall or remember. It's a prevalent type of text throughout Islamic history, appearing in different languages and in different formats, but it basically adheres to the same model. And that is for an author to provide biographical information of various individuals relevant to his own time and the past deemed important enough to remember whether that person is writing about Sufis, scholars, saints, <clears throat> or poets. So I guess the most contemporary equivalent would be a kind of who's who. Um, and one last thing is that because it's so crucial to my work, hopefully throughout you'll see the, some, some of the ways in which Tazkirez can lend us um, a fresh eye on historical transformations, social information, intellectual information. It's, it's a genre that I think has been discarded for too long for simply <coughs> kind of listing and cataloging death dates and birth dates of various individuals. So to begin, the standard narrative of Persian literary history is largely the product of, of this man, Muhammad Taqi Bahar, who died in 1951, who in his work Stylistics and in other works as well, he devised a schematic for the development of Persian literary history 
and broke it up into four schools or styles. And what he did, he gave each of these styles a name, Khorasani, Iraqi, Sabki, Hindi, Bozgashta, Adabi. He affiliated each one with a different temporal period, and he ascribed to each one a core set of stylistic attributes. So, for example, the Khorasani school tends to be poetry in the form of odes, court poetry of the great Samanids and Seljuks and Ghaznavids, poetry in praise of kings that depict battles, merrymaking, wine drinking, the poetry of Hafez, Anvari, things of that nature. Now, there are a lot of ways to, to approach this narrative, and it has its benefits and it has its drawbacks. But one way I want to problematize, uh, problematize it, one thing that always um, interested me was the last category, Bazgashtadabi. Because it's here with its inclusion in the schematic, otherwise devoted to the grand narrative of Persian literary history, that we begin to see the bleeding together, the melding of Persian literary history and Iranian literary history. And what I mean by that, while well, the first three schools, Khorasani, Iraqi, and Sabki Hindi, they refer to literary trends prevalent throughout the Persian world, whether it be Iran, Central, South Asia, or beyond. But Azgashta Adabi refers to Iran alone. It's an exclusive category to Iran. So with its inclusion here, you kind of see the insertion of Iranian nationalist sentiments and an Iranian centrism. So what was Bazgash Adabi? What was this literary return? What were they returning to? What were they returning from? Well, we're told in late uh, 18th, early 19th century Esfahan, Iran, there are a group of poets who decided to hearken back to the simple style of the great masters, the ancients, like Rumi, Hafez, Saadi, and Ferdowsi. They wanted to go back and purify Persian and reconnect with that poetry of the classical masters that are found in the Khorasani and Iraqi schools. Well, why did they feel the need to do this? Because we're told they were responding to what they saw around them, and that was the prevalence of this Sadki Hindi style. What Bahar claims and others was overly complicated, abstruse, grammatically incorrect, incoherent, and unintelligible. So according to Bahar, while Iran returned the simplicity of the ancient masters in the 19th century, the rest of the Persian world remained mired in this stagnated, unintelligible, corrupted style of poetry. So there's a clear kind of national bifurcation here, Iran on the one side and the rest of the Persian world on the other. Now for me, one of the main legacies of its inclusion here in this schematic, otherwise devoted to Persian literary history writ large, is the way in which it elides transformations in literary culture occurring outside Iran in the 19th century. There's kind of a narrowing, a tapering of this schematic. It starts off with the grand, far-reaching geography of the Khorasani, Iraqi, and Sabki Hindi school. And as we reach the 19th century, that geographic space is narrowed to only include Iran. So it begs the question, what's happening to Persian literary culture outside Iran in the 19th century? One last thing I want to mention is that while Bahar codified this schematic, while he gave names to Sabki Hindi to explain the complicated poetry of the time and gave the name Bozgash this tension, this juxtaposition between a simple style and a more complicated style, and this notion that one needs to return to the poetry of the masters, is something you can find in the writings of Tazkira authors in the 19th century, Iranian Tazkira authors, writing whether it be in Tehran, Esfahan, or Shiraz. So we can look at Reza Kulikhan Hedayat, who wrote in the court of Nasiruddin Shah. He was a diplomat and a historian traveler. And this is what he said 
about what he was observing around him. So you could see this tension between some confused speech, idle prattle of the poetry he was observing and the need for people to return to the masters. <clears throat> we can even go further back in time to the court of Fat Ali Shah, Hajar, and look at the work of Fazokhan Gurusi, who also observed something going on and the fact that the ancients were being disregarded, the masters were being disregarded. We can go further back in time to Esfahan and the famous work by Azar Teshkadeh, who still thought the need that the masters were being disregarded and it was necessary for people to move back to their simplistic style. So that's the first part. And the main thing I want to take away or, or leave you with is this notion that, based on this grand narrative of Persian literary history, we're not given much about what's happening in the 19th century as far as Persian poetic culture is concerned. And for that, I'm going to move to the court of the last Nawab of Arkad. And what's interesting here is that his court was located in South India. So it's not the normal hotbed of Persian literary culture we associate with the place as opposed to, say, Delhi or Lucknow. Secondly, the heyday of his court was in the 1840s and 1850s. So it occurred after that ever-important date of 1835 when the British decided to abolish Persian as the main administrative language of India. So where was this court located? Well, it was located in Arkash, you see there, uh, marked by the A, <coughs> next to present-day Chennai, which was once Madras, one of the seats of British power in India. And this was the seat of the Carnatic state. It was a state that was in existence from 1698 until 1801, sorry, 1855. And the Nawabs of Carnatic existed until then. It was a successor state to the Mughals that emerged <coughs> with the breakup of that empire in 1855. Its territories were annexed under the British. Now, the princes of Arcot, the, this uh, house of Arcot, still has privileges and visibility today. And there you see uh, their coat of arms pulled from their website. I think they're still receiving some kind of tax benefit from the government of India. And below is a picture of the current prince, not Nawab, but current prince of Arkat, Muhammad Abdul Ali. But to move exactly to this court of the last Nawab of Arkat, Muhammad Ghaus Khan Bahadur, whose pen name was Azam, what was so special about his court? Why did it create this vibrant poetic environment? Well, I'd say there were three reasons. One was on account of the British. So in 1801, the Nawabs of Karnataka became no more than titular heads. They had no real political power. They were under the suzerainty of the British, which meant the British controlled their financial affairs, their military affairs, and their foreign affairs. So this allowed the Nawabs to focus more attention on those domains they still had control over, mainly culture. And that's what the Nawab did. He promoted Islamic learning and culture through the promotion of printing presses, libraries, and schools. The second thing that made this environment so vibrant from a Persian poetic perspective was geography. So I mentioned that Arkot, the seat of the court, was located next to uh, Madras in 1766 and moved even closer to Madras next to Fort St. George, indicating the further enmeshing of the East India Company activities and the Nawab's court. But most importantly was that Madras was one of the epicenters of British power in India and it had this ability to draw in people for employment purposes. It offered a wealth of employment opportunities for people skilled in the kind of scribal Persian technologies. So they were hiring people to be administrators, technocrats, 
instructors, secretaries, what have you. So people came from near and far to gain employment and put their Persian skills to use with the British and also with the Nawab. And that kind of allowed them to take part in this interesting Persian literary culture. They could double dip. By day, they could be a jurist or administrator or a tax collector. In their free time or at night, they could compose Persian poetry, write a work on prosody, things of that nature. Uh, the final thing that makes it interesting in regards to Persian poetic culture is the Nawab himself, that he spent most of his life in Regency dedicated to education learning how to be educated as a prince, and spending a lot of time studying Persian prose and poetry. And that he did, he composed Persian and Urdu poetry from an early age, under the pen name Azam, meaning the grandest or the greatest. And the crown jewel in this achievement was his promotion, his establishment of a poetic society in 1846, which lasted roughly 10 years until his death in 1855. Now, what was this society? Well, it was an exclusive affair. It met once a week at the royal residence. It was mostly attended by well-known poets and other administrators affiliated with the court. And while many attendees also composed Urdu poetry like the Nawab, this society was dedicated to Persian poetry alone, to discuss, compose, read, and analyze Persian poetry. There were two heads who governed its order, its dictates, and they were very strict on who they allowed to come in. There are accounts of people being asked to leave because they breached decorum or not come back because their poetry isn't up to snuff. So to kind of understand this poetic society, who were the people involved, what were their interconnections, their cross-cutting genealogies. I went to Tazkireh Ishirati Binesh, which was a Tazkireh that was commissioned by Azam um, to kind of record the occurrence of this poetic society and situate it in the larger atmosphere, literary atmosphere of the time. And he was so proud of the work, he actually sent 31 copies of it um, to, to the British. And my goal here was really just to map some of the information in one way, in a simplistic way, that's found in the Tazkirat. And what I should say about Tazkirat, I mean, the way I think of them is they're like pins being dropped on a map, and they're stamped with a particular date and a particular place of production. And you could insert yourself at that moment of production, the date and time and place it was produced. And by looking at the content, how far back an author offers a biography historically, or how far reaching he offers a biography geographically, you can get a sense of this author's kind of literary, social, political purview, how he saw the world around him. So that's what I tried to do here, just looking at how Binesh saw all these cross-cutting interconnections and lineages. And so you could have mapped this a, a lot of different ways according to employment or, um, say, geography. But I chose to look at the poets. And so the purple lines are kind of educational affiliations, poetic affinities, people who were instructed by one person or another in poetry, were influenced by one person or another in poetry. Um, is, that, well, is there a certain period that this represents. Yeah, thank you for thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's it's specifically those poets who are active at this poetic society, and in the in, in the environment. So we'll say, you know, 1840 to well, it was published in 1848. So probably a little further back, 1835 to 1848, something like that. So this is just the poets that were active at this poetic society and active around uh, the court at that time. So I'm sorry, and they're all yeah. geographically in the same area. They're all geographically in the same area. Why they came to Binesh's attention, I mean, 
There are a couple accounts of poets who were active in Hyderabad that he knew about from his brother who was, who was traveling there. But for the most part, to be entered into this um, Tazkira, you had to come into contact with Binesh, who was stationed at Arkad, who was stationed in Madras. So for example, we could look at Azam, who's there, and you could see he has a line connecting him to Rakam, who was his instructor in poetry. Uh, he was also one of the heads of this poetic society. And you could see Rakam, too, was a major instructor <coughs> of the various um, members of the poetic society as well. And I should have mentioned that these red highlighted names are members of the poetic society. And if I didn't mention, the green lines are kind of family affiliations. So Rakam taught all these students who attended the poetic society. And these were also students of some of them of Al-Qaf, you can see over there. And along with Rakam, he was the other head of this poetic society. And Valkov, too, had his own set of students. And one last thing I'll mention, this central figure this, by the name of Aga, because um, it'll come up later, he was someone who connected all these various poetic genealogies and lineages. All these lineages of instruction are kind of going and flowing back to him. But overall, this is just to show how interconnected all the poets were there, either through family relations or either through instruction. And also, I think, what can be done with Tazkirvez, what kind of information we could take from Tazkirvez. May I ask? Yeah. How, how did uh, all of these uh, people communicate or these uh, texts be disseminated? Well, so these, what I should say, these, these are people who were all active in this poetic society or they were active. Um, are you talking about the, this Tazkirvez in particular or? Well, uh, yes, all of these people who were taught by common teachers and so on, and they would be distributed both in India and in Persia? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't text they were producing. These are just people who are actually poets themselves, so who attended this poetic society, either the red highlight or didn't. So it just shows the interconnections. So, I mean, they, they were colleagues. I mean, some were jurists, some were administrators, some um, were translators to the Nawab's court. Um, some were just mainly poets. Yeah. And they just were the Facebook of the time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is according to Binesh, yeah. I mean, he's basically showing you all the relationships of the, of the time. But I think it will come up later important to see this, this intermeshing. I mean, there is a kind of stylistic core to the poetry that's being disseminated here. And you can see that they're all, people are tied very closely to it, except for kind of one person, you will see. So um, to move from, from one Tazkire to many. And um, here, you know, what's interesting about this project, what attracted me to it, was just how many Tazkirahs were being produced around this time. How many Tazkirahs were being produced in the Nawab's court? How many Tazkirahs were being produced either right before his reign or right afterwards? So there's a spate of Tazkirah production occurring here, which I think is quite interesting. And here you have a list of the various Tazkirahs being produced at that time, as well as some of the crucial responses. But even more important than that, what's so unique about Tazkirah production here is it's not just that authors wanted to situate their work in the long spectrum of Persian literary history, but actually they were writing Tazkirahs in response to one another. So it was a competitive venture. So someone would write a Tazkirah in response to a Tazkirah just offered a year, two years, five years earlier. It was a way in which they could debate one another. It was a way in which they could insert their voice into the ledger of debates occurring at the time. And so to look at this competitive practice and the responses that a lot of these Tazkirahs elicited, I made this kind of visualization. 
which you can see it's you know has a lot of moving parts to it but what I wanted to do was was focus on one um, competition one back and forth between two Tazkira authors that I think cuts to the heart of um, the literary climate here literary debate and poetic culture and that's between Madan um, al-Jawahir, The Storehouse of Jewels, written in 1844 by Vasef, and Gulzari Azam, Azam's Rose Garden, written eight years later as a response in 1852, bearing the Nawab's name, but not necessarily written by him. It may have been written by the poet. <coughs> Excuse me, Rakim. So, Madan al-Jawahir. What do we know about it? What do we know about Vasef? Well, Vasef was a poet and scholar. He wrote many works in addition to this. He was a teacher at the East India Company Madrasa. He taught for seven years. And also we hear from someone like Binesh is that he was someone who advocated a simple style of poetry. So already we're kind of hearing this coded language but a simple style of poetry that Bahar is going to codify as, as Bazgasht. So he wasn't really connected to the prevalent style of poetry that was being produced at the time. And if you want to see how disconnected he was from the genealogies, well, there's this genealogy that tends to be wrapped up with what's known as the Sabki Hindi style, this intellectual, supposedly complicated style. And there you see Vasef is kind of off by himself, doing something different, advocating a simple style of poetry, the way in which he was taught by his father and taught his son. Um, most importantly about the work, and we don't know the exact scope of it because it's no longer existent. But most importantly, what we do know from the responses it elicited from uh, his various opponents is that Vasef made jokes about people. And he treated various poets without decorum. And two people in particular he made jokes about. Two people very close to Nawab's heart. One was Nasser Ali Sirhindi, a late Mughal poet, who the Nawab modeled his poetry after. And the second, was, the, was Aga, who, if you remember, is at the center of the genealog genealogical poetic lineage at this uh, court. So you can imagine criticizing someone like Aga, who's so central to instruction there, and criticizing Nasser Ali Sirhindi, the person that the Nawab modeled his um, poetry after, was going to get him into a lot of trouble. And that it really did. Um, there were quite a few responses to his work. The Nawab's advisors accused him of breach and decorum. It became very nasty and heated. And I should say, kind of parenthetically, I mean, Vasef was dealing with the fallout of this one Tazkiret for the rest of his life. So 25 years later, he's writing in Hyderabad. And he's trying to undo the damage and pick up the pieces from this one Tazkiret that he wrote. <coughs> it's kind of sad in some ways, actually. Um, but the intellectual response, the poetic response to it, came eight years later. Oops, going the wrong way there. And that was uh, Gozari Azam. Azam's Rose Garden. And it was written specifically as a response to this Tazkirin. And we know that from the introduction, the author sets it out and states that. But it did include information on other poets as well. In fact, it was a Tazkirin, so it included all these biographies who were active at the Nawab's court at the time, or even in that geographical area, historically. Now, while the author has entries on all these other poets, two to three pages at most for the other poets. He devotes 20 pages to Vasef. So what does he do in 20 pages? How can he spend 20 pages on Vasef and only two to three pages on others? Well, what he does, he accuses Vasef of a vari variety of petty mistakes 
and misstated facts occurring in his Tazkirah. Careless scholarship, inattentive to detail, he misstated a birth date of a poet, he misstates a poet's pen name, he misstates the amount of money that a certain poet received from a certain ruler. So really petty stuff, just to show that he was a careless individual in general. And his Tazkirah wasn't worth much. But most importantly, the issue that this author has with Vasef's Tazkirah is the way Vasef treated the poetry of Abdul Qadir Bidel, who so many people at the time and later considered to be the apogee of the style in vogue, a complicated style of poetry which Bihar would call later Sabki Hindi. And Vasef criticizes Bidel, and particularly his use of idioms and the way in which the use of those idioms invert the rules of poetry, and he does so in a negative fashion basically saying that Bidel's use of idioms don't amount to much. And because of that, this style of poetry shouldn't amount to much either. So what's becoming clear here is that what's putting these two local rivals in mid-19th century Arcot and the competition between their Tazkirehs at odds is a debate regarding the simple versus complicated style of poetry for which Bidel's poetry was the lightning rod. So. How does the author of Gulzari Azam respond to this? Well, he does a really interesting thing. He basically collects all these various opinions from Indian authors and creates a kind of codex of contemporary opinions, not only on Bidel's poetry itself, but on the specific use of this idiom and whether it should be considered you know, as inverting the rules of poetry. And these opinions that he calls together are from recent times, some as far back, I think, as 30 years, and some more recently. And what they show is just how active this debate was concerning Bidel's poetry, and also how accessible some of these ideas were to the author of Gozari Azam. So he collects all these Indian opinions. Some of them are very negative toward Bidel, some of them are positive toward Bidel, some are neutral, some are diplomatic, some aren't. And after going through all that, after the 20 pages of the misstated facts, after talking about all, all the other authors saw uh, or viewed the poetry of Bidel, the author of Gozai Azam gives his final opinion. <clears throat> the source of the attack of the Iranians relating to the curse and scorn of the exalta Mirza is one, the Indian race of this esteemed master, and two, the Sunni religion of this man of excellence. But if this celebrated one had been from the locale of Iran, then they would have elevated him to the ninth climb. They have brought to bear a counter charm in his poetry and intense weakness from the time of Rudaki, who is the source of all poets of Iran and Turan until today. Not one of Iran's poets takes into account that in his speech, types of offenses, both by way of idiom and also from prosody and rhyme have occurred. What justice that to distinguish him and only make trouble with the Mirza. This is a long way from where we started, one steeped in the local politics and rivalries. And now we're hearing in the final analysis that it's not really about Bidel's poetry. It's about him being Indian and the way in which not Indians are criticizing him, but Iranians are criticizing him. So, I mean, what do I think this all means in the end to conclude? First, in a Tazkira produced in the far-off outpost of mid-19th century Arkot, itself a response to another locally produced Tazkira and steeped in the rivalries of that locale we see the heart of the poetic debates are those occupying other writers of the time elsewhere, whether in Iran, like we saw with the earlier Tazkir writers, or in the Indian opinions that were included in this Gulzari Azam. And it was this debate over the juxtaposition between complicated poetry and simple poetry, which Bihar would later codify as Sabki Hindi and Vazgash Shadabi, and the lightning rod 
for this poetry was, was Bedell, or the debate rather was Bedell. Second, that this debate was not occurring along ethnogeographic fault lines as we come to see with Bihar's conceptualization. It wasn't just Iranians on one side advocating this simple style of poetry or Indians on the other advocating a complex style of poetry. This is an intra-Indian debate as evidenced by the fact that we see Vasef on one side and the author of Gulzari Azam on the other. Third, even though this was the case, some authors, like this author here, we're beginning to see that ethnic, geographic, and national components coursing through the opinions of Persian poetic production stylistics, predating Bihar's schematic by some time. So even if we work within the categories based on Bihar's nationalistic narrative of Persian literary history, there are non-Iranian voices inserting themselves into it, both supporting his conclusions that there's a national bifurcation and subverting it, like Vasev, showing us that this was also an intra-Indian debate. So overall, I'd say what this means to me is that if we look more closely at Tazkarez, connect Tazkarez to one another, and bring in other voices from the non-Iranian world of the 19th century, it will make for a more interesting, integrative, and most of all, inclusive Persian literary history. Thank you very much. Thank you.